your host, Bill, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Chris. Now, relax, everybody. We're going to get to Chris, but I'm sure most of you heard me say episode number 38.5. To be more exact, this is episode 38, round two. Now, Chris, before I ask you how you're doing, would you mind telling the fine, fine, fine people out there in podcast land why we are calling it this round two? Well, in a BTC first... Which is never good. (laughs) We had an absolutely abysmal recording uh, the other night. (laughs) Normally, Bill's able to work his magic and do a little touching up here and there, but we were just awful. I mean, I tried to resuscitate the fucking bitch, and it just was not coming back to life. There was nothing I could do, Chris. From the botched audio on my end, you know, that was a fucking disaster. And then, (laughs) more importantly, was the lack of passion that we had, buddy. Yeah, I mean, we called it in the beginning of the show. I think we said we we weren't all there, but this happens. We were just too fucking tired, but, you know... After hearing how bad we sounded, I'm like, you know, we owe it to the fucking people out there who have been listening to us to do a better job and release something that's at least somewhat on par to what we have been doing, which which isn't saying much, but it's better than what we had, Chris. So uh, enough of the negativity on your part. Let's keep spreading the positivity tonight. Uh, as I mentioned in the um, recording last night, but I looked at our downloads and we must be doing something right. I don't know how, and I sure as fuck don't know what. But, bud, we are up over 56% in our downloads. So, the word... Does that compute? Oh, no, 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 it does. It does, bud. We're doing something it good. It can't be. For once in our lives, bud, we're doing something good. And it's taking off. I mean, so, people are listening, and we're getting contacted by more listeners, which is great. You know, let's be interactive as possible on this. And, uh... Um, We don't give a shit if you tell us that we don't know what we're talking about because we know we don't. We're just happy that people are listening. You know, it gives us a reason to do another episode. And a 56% increase is nothing to shake a stick at, Chris. Yeah, I I gotta say, there's things where you're like like surprised, uh, like, oh, this happened. And then there's like, how the fuck did this happen? (laughs) Well, I gotta say, the last two episodes have been really good, in my opinion. The Asia Degree one, and then the one last week with, uh, what the fuck was that? The Watcher. That came out pretty good. That was probably one of my favorite, actually. Just 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 because of the case itself. Well, I thank liked. thank God you carried the fucking uh, the weight on that one, man, because you did you all prob- the research. <laughs> you could probably tell I was interested because it was the first time I like thoroughly read through the article before we actually recorded. Well, maybe that's why we've gotten all these downloads because you're doing more of the talking. <laughs> But, bud, the good news doesn't stop there, little buddy. It seems we had our first t-shirt sale on Teespring. What? We did. Uh, We sold the Blue Balls t-shirt, bud. Now, (laughs) before you get too excited, Chris, I should reveal something. The sale was from our good friend of the show, T-Bone. And you guys might remember... (laughs) Yeah. You might remember old T-Bone. He is my friend since... Fucking 1980, he's in the U.S. Navy. He did the interview with me on the episode, I don't know, 35, 36, the Nautical Nightmare episode, which he did a great job. And he will be back with us pretty soon, bud, uh, as we're going to have our first <laughs> first ever BTC roundtable discussion. Oh, God. <laughs> but yeah, we did actually have a shirt sale that was neither you nor myself. 
And, and if any of our listeners are interested in any BTC apparel, we have fucking mugs, shirts, leggings, hoodies, all that shit of our favorite fucking Between the Cracks designs. You can find that by going to teespring.com and just searching uh, BTC. And it's the BTC store where the fuck I named it. Um, and <laughs> I wish that we uh, had some money coming in from there, bud. But uh, <laughs> even if you look at the profit from one sale, I think... Uh, once we split the profits from uh, T-Bone's shirt, we should be able to get a cup of coffee each. <laughs> that should put us in the hole for the third quarter. <laughs> We're in the red. <laughs> we are definitely on the way up, bud. And this all feels good. I'm just trying to um, rack my brain about anything else I talked about last night. Oh, I did mention about some sick fuck, some farm animal I saw coming out of one of the stalls at a store I was in with his goddamn rubber gloves on, probably scrubbing away at his fucking balloon knot in there and then running around the store, touching everything and then, you know, getting all bitchy with everybody else by not protecting his life with uh, the rubber gloves. Meanwhile, he's smearing his shit. Yeah, smearing his shit all over the place. Oh, man. Yeah, like that's what is that about? But, dude, that's the state uh, of the world right now, bud. This is uh, 2020, bud, and uh, people are now scrubbing their assholes with uh, rubber gloves and then uh, proceeding to touch <laughs> touch away at all the items in the store. Well, I think it's a good thing that we record in separate locations because I think it would be illegal for us to actually be in the same room. <laughs> oh, yes. I should mention, pal, that we will be back next week with our Thanksgiving extravaganza. But... Before everybody gets too crazy, we are going to be limited to uh, just 10 listeners, pal, due to the uh, New York State mandates. So please be courteous. <laughs> Bud, but uh, something tells me we're going to have uh, <laughs> no problem complying with those regulations. 10 at best. Oh, God. So whatever. That's basically all the shit that we covered last night. Listen, I'm not going to get pissed off about last night recording. Today's a new day, right, Bud? And here we are again. So, Chris, tonight, bud, I know this isn't really your cup of tea, but, bud, this one scares the living fuck out of me. And I can't tell you why. There's just something so scary about identity theft to me. And it's not so much, you know, the, the financial aspect of it, and it's not so much the, the legal ramifications and whatnot, but it, it's more of the psychological aspect that I really find interesting and creepy as fuck. It's almost like as if, you know, once you steal somebody's identity and start living as that person, you lose your former self. So I always wonder what happens within that psychosis of someone's mind. Like, do they then fall into this abyss of not knowing who the fuck they are? As I said, Chris, this is an identity theft case, and it is one of the more popular ones recently because within the past four years, this person's identity has recently been revealed through DNA testing. So with all that said, bud, tonight... Chris, we are going to be talking about the very bizarre and unnerving case of Lori Erica Ruff. This is... Oh, sorry, did you say Ruff? Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, no. Oh, my God. <laughs> is this what we're... Oh, God. Is this how low we, we, we've hit, Chris? God damn it. <laughs> As we said, we are talking about the unnerving case of Lori Erica Ruff. And yes, it is unnerving. Don't listen to my laughter or Chris's hijinks, which were very unnecessary. But um, like I said, this is a stolen identity case. And if you have the chance to Google Lori, you're going to see a number of names and identities pop up. And you're going to see quite a few pictures with these identities where she kind of metamorphosizes into 
a different person, you know? First thing you're going to come across, most likely, would be a set of four driver's licenses. Driver's license, Chris, or driver's licenses? I mean, I, I would have to think it's licenses, just because right. there's... Driver's license. Plural. Because huh? it's, like, it's not like deer, right? Like, it's... It's not like plural and singular. Yeah, it's it's like yes, ways. yes, you're correct. It's driver's licenses. The first thing that you're most likely going to notice when you look at these drivers licenses <laughs> is that there are different names uh, attached to each. Now, um, I'm going to post a picture of these on Instagram, and perhaps Chris can post one on Facebook for us. But you're going to see three different Texas driver's licenses. One Idaho driver's license, and um, each one pretty much with a different name. We have an Idaho driver's license with the name Becky Sue Turner. Then we have our Texas driver's license with the aforementioned Lori Erica Ruff. Then we also have another Texas license with the name Lori Erica Kennedy. So, Chris, with all that said, I have laid out three names in front of you. I'm going to ask you a question, pal. Which one of those identities do you think is the real identity of tonight's person of interest but you have five seconds hmm. i'm gonna go with Lori. sorry who is Lori erica ruff So close, but no, I'm sorry you were wrong. But had you said Kimberly Maria McLean, you would have been correct. That not even one of the names offered. <laughs> good, good for you, but you were you were so close. I wagered everything. We are so proud of you, Chris. You were so close, but this is bullshit. Let's hear it for Chris. At this point, bud, as I'd like to say on the show, we need to go backwards to go forwards. And we need to learn how Kimberly Maria McLean became Lori Erica Kennedy Ruff. So, uh, bud, why don't you take us back in time and give us a little info on Kimberly Maria McLean. Or McLean, however the fuck you want to say it. On October 16th, 1968... Kimberly Maria McLean entered the world. A native to the Philadelphia suburbs, she lived a fairly normal life growing up, but things kind of turned as they often do uh, when mom and dad got divorced. It was in the fall of 1986. Join the club, Lori. I mean, uh, well, if we're going to go through divorce rates... Oh, my God. (laughs) I mean, seriously, though. But, yeah, you you were saying, Chris, I mean, from what we know of Kimberly, it was your everyday average American life, right, for the most part? Yeah, I mean, you had a a stay-at-home mom and a dad that was... Whoa, 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 whoa. But I've let the toxic masculinity slide week after week after week. And I'm going to let it slide again this week, pal. But just to let you know, I'm watching. I'm, I was just reading facts. Continue. Her father was a carpenter and a volunteer firefighter. You know, just kind of like, just your typical, probably family around that time, that era. This is the real father or the stepfather? Yeah, it was the real father. Things went a little south between mom and dad. 
And when Kim was just an adolescent, uh, she found herself living with her mom and who had remarried to a new man by the name of Robert Becker. And they moved to uh, Wincote, Pennsylvania. She was removed from her childhood home, and she's now attending a new school in Bishop McDevitt High School. And, and that's a tough transition, because I had to leave Yonkers at, God, 13, 14 years old, and then I had to start in a new high school. I had to spend a year down in Florida, which fucking sucked, in Spring Hill. So that was probably my worst year. So I had to leave all the friends I had and then start in a new high school with no friends and a million miles away from all my old friends. So I get how that can really fuck you up mentally um, as an adolescent, whether it be you know your early teens or your, your mid-teens. And that really fucking sucks. But then we moved back to New York. Uh, then I had to start another high school for like my fucking 10th grade year or 11th grade, where the fuck it was. And I mean... That transition wasn't as difficult because I wanted to be back in New York, but, you know, I get how that can really send, you know, a, a fucking kid spiraling. I mean, it, it, you know, we joke about it and it doesn't sound like it's that big of a deal, but that could be more dramatic than, God, I mean, I don't want to say more than a divorce, but for a kid, that can alter their fucking entire universe, leaving all their friends behind and shit. You know, that fucking sucks. Especially depending on how long they lived there for. If you'd established, like, real like good friends and then he had to leave i mean granted i don't know if it was difficult for her to see some of her friends at least at least she was still in the same state but still to move out of that move out of different school and not see her friends on a daily basis well they said about a half hour away right so like i mean but yeah if she's not fucking driving and your parents don't want to drive you to meet so it's it could still basically be a world away Right, and it's not you know you're not you can't see him every day like you would at school. Nah, so it's yeah, it's it's totally a different world. So this is where things kind of you know some of the trouble starts happening uh, with Kimberly and what they're thinking is between the new house, the divorce, having a new dad with new rules. You know, you could be somewhat rebellious, which is to be expected. Well, I have some experience in that uh, area too, Chris, but I'm not going to get into that tonight. Perhaps uh, another time, but, you know, not all things between step-parent and step-children are are peachy keen. So, I mean, you know, sometimes it works out well, sometimes it doesn't. Um, And if it goes bad, it can go bad quick, and it can go bad really bad. So, you know, we we see these little things start to happen, and uh, I'm drawing a little too many parallels to myself, Chris, and I don't like it. Uh, Moving away from your friends, and then you have a step-parent that you might not see eye-to-eye with. All these things are leading up to um, trouble. And trouble it will be, because in the fall of 1986, Kimberly decides to move to the King of Prussia in Pennsylvania. So... King of Prussia was only about a 30-minute drive from where her mother and stepfather lived. So she wasn't too far away. But that was about to change because one day, Kimberly was going to call her mother and tell her that she was leaving for good. And not only that, she said, don't come after me. Ooh. So was this the words of an angry teenager who's just a bit rebellious? Or did she mean it? Well, Chris, uh, I think as we come to find out, it is the latter. Because, I mean, 
generally speaking, that's something you would kind of hear a teenager say, I'm leaving, don't ever come after me, I never want to see you again, all that type of shit, right? And, you know, nine times out of ten, they come back, It you know, it could just be uh, teenager dramatics. But, you know, in this instance, and in other more serious instances, it holds true, and uh, she meant it. And she took off, and she went about as far away as you could possibly go within the United States, but she went from Pennsylvania all the ways out to the west coast of lovely California. Kind of a crazy thing for even an 18-year-old. It's not a crazy thing for them to say that. Whatever, we've, we've all heard the spiel between teenagers being angry at their parents. But from what we hear from the family side, at least, is that they don't, for the life of them, know why she would ever do something like this. Now, maybe the family wouldn't want to share. I mean, this happens all the time. That there may, Something may have happened, they just didn't want to share it. But from what we can tell here, nothing really did happen. She just split at the age of 18 to the other side of the country. Yeah, I mean, my, my guess would be that something had to be going on behind the scenes. Initially, looking at it on the surface, I was like, something has to be going on in this household that they're not telling us. But, you know, in retrospect, and as we start to tell the good, good people out in podcast land uh, the details of the story, you might be right, Chris. Maybe there was nothing going on behind the scenes. Maybe it was just some kind of mental affliction. God, that was ominous, huh, Chris? <laughs> a tad. Kimberly, and now the names are going to start to change a little bit, so it's going to get a little confusing. Kimberly left her home in Pennsylvania and headed out to California. This is in 1986. She doesn't show up on a radar again till 1988. And the reason for her showing up on a radar is not very good. And at the time, she wasn't even on the radar. We just come to find this out 30 years later. In 1988, in May of 88 to be more specific, Kimberly went and obtained the birth certificate. And get this, Chris, this is fucking weird. Of a young girl named Becky Sue Turner. What's really odd here is that, uh, unfortunately, Becky Sue Turner was a two-year-old girl that was killed along with two siblings of hers in a house fire in the state of Washington in 1971. So what Kimberly did was go through papers and was probably looking at old obituaries and trying to find a child that had died that she could basically obtain their identity. And that's exactly what she did. She found the backstory on this Becky Sue Turner and found out that she was born in Bakersfield, California in 1969. So with that information in hand, Kimberly went and requested a copy of Becky Sue Turner's birth certificate posing as Becky Sue Turner. That's what I'm saying, dude. Stolen identity is bizarre enough, but the fact that you're going to this length and stealing the identity of a two-year-old little girl, a little baby that was fucking killed in a fire. At that point, man, stand back. Something's wrong with this motherfucker. She's just on a mission. She doesn't care. Yeah. She doesn't care who or what. She just she wants her name changed. She's like taking this to the next fucking level. Like leaving, don't ever find me. She's but she's like making sure that no one can ever find her. I would at least think that it's a bad omen for me to have gone. Not only to go steal somebody's identity, but to steal the identity of a young baby that died. There's there's two sides to this fucking coin here. One side is that creep factor and, and ability to, to uh, detach from reality and any kind of consequence, I guess, or, you know, any, any emotional consequence. But also, you know, she had to be very smart and very with it to come up with this plan, right? Because she came up with this plan of looking for 
a child or somebody that had passed away at a very young age that would, in current day, match up to her age. And this is before the inception of the internet, the cell phones, the sharing of fucking information, you know, quickly. There was none of that. It was it was face-to-face contact. It was letter writing, all that shit. So she must have put on a good spiel to the people in Bakersfield, California to get this birth certificate. Yeah, she's uh, she's got to be a pretty bright girl because, uh, like you said, obviously not having any means to really access this stuff online. How would you even know how to take somebody's identity? <laughs> well, Chris, I'm going to say I think I know how because I grew up in this era, bro. I know how she did this. You probably Bill? you might be a little too young. Is your name really Bill? <laughs> oh, it is, Chris. But uh, I bet she used microfiche. Do you remember microfiche? The, the schools used to have this. Like you, there'd be like a. It was you remember like the Dewey Decimal System in the, in the library where they like they have like a barely. They, I think I was two maybe. Yeah. Well, they used to have when I was a kid. Like you would have to go through and like look it up. Yeah, by publisher or title, the writer of the fucking book, whatever. But then there you also had uh, this other thing where you could put these like little scanned fucking like. Uh, oh God, I mean, almost like look like little negatives, right? And then you could blow them up on this screen, so. You know, it was a way to condense, like, old uh, periodicals and shit like that. So, she probably scanned through those fucking things and found a a child that died, matched the age up to hers and said she could pass herself off for this, and found a child that was killed out of state, but she could use that child's date of birth and seal the identity because it was in a state that she was in, which would be California. I wasn't doing shit like this. I mean, 19, I didn't even know how to do something like that. I fucking wouldn't know the first thing about it. That's, I mean, crazy. And I guess just because of the error, like you mentioned, it would just be difficult to even know what she was doing. Yeah, how the fuck could you? You know, you you come there with a piece of paper or you make these phone calls or you have something stamped from a fucking notary or some some bullshit. Who knows? You know, you don't know. But but that's just where our story begins. So uh, tuck that into your back pocket, pal, uh, because here we go. Now, Kimberly has Becky's birth certificate. She heads off to Idaho. She's saying goodbye to California. Fuck you. See you later. Heading to Idaho. At this point, with birth certificate in hand, she now enters Idaho, and she was able to use that birth certificate to obtain a state ID card in the same year of 1988. So now, for all intents and purposes, Kimberly McLean is gone. She is now Becky Sue Turner, the new Becky Sue Turner of Idaho. Freaky. Yeah, dude. And it's about to get a whole lot freakier. But, bud, she did not stay Becky Sue Turner for very long. Because, as we said, in May of 1980, bud, she became Becky Sue Turner. But in July, July 5th of 1988, to be exact, she then legally changed her name to Lori Erica Kennedy. So she basically used this Becky Sue Turner as a springboard to become someone else, as a buffer from being Kimberly to now becoming Lori. So Becky Sue Turner, as we know her, the second coming of her is officially gone again. And then not only that, bud, she went from Idaho to Dallas, Texas to do this. She's a smart cookie. Yeah. I don't know how she knows how to go through this whole process. Not, not only smart because I'd say if she changed her name legally from her original name, Kimberly Maria McLean, that could have been traced, right? Yeah. But instead, she changes her name 
to a new identity so that she steals. She steals a new identity, and then she changes her name she, from there, so it's it, less it, traceable. Brilliant. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's insane. And not to mention, like, I'm curious. How easy is it to just change your name completely like that? She says that she took the birth date of July 18th, 1969. You could just change your birth date? Bro, I don't know how the fuck that works. I mean, I understand changing a name, but she went and changed her birth date. So she took this new identity, and I don't know, maybe she like fudged the records a little bit and and, and altered that to, to make it appear to be July 18th of 69. But something here is not adding up. But like we said, dude, this is the era where there was no... Basically, no NSA agent following you around. There was no fucking microchipping with a fucking phone in your pocket. There was no way to really trace a person other than just by good uh, old-fashioned fucking detective work, right? Because everything is done in pen and paper at this point. So, Chris, let's just do a quick rundown of where we are now. So, in 86, Kimberly McLean leaves her home in Pennsylvania, heads out west to California. In 1988... She obtains the birth certificate of a dead child who died in a fire by the name of Becky Sue Turner. She then takes that certificate, heads to Idaho, and stays in Idaho for about a month. At that point, she heads from Idaho south down to Texas and then becomes Lori Erica Kennedy of Dallas, Texas. So, pal, uh, why don't you take us a little further down this (laughs) creepy journey? Well, with her brand new identity... She now obtains a social security number, so this removes all traces of her true identity. Now she's an unofficial person. That's it. So she's now, as you mentioned, in Dallas, Texas, with a brand new identity. Now she's got the social security number to boot. So she doesn't stop there with her brand new life. She is now receives a Texas driver's license, so now she can legally drive around in Texas, and... She also qualifies for a GED in the next year. She goes on to Dallas County Community College and in 97 graduates from the University of Texas at Arlington with a, a business admin degree. Well, as we so, say, dude, this is a smart girl. I mean, we knew smart. that. She's cooking. She's getting everything she needs to do to, to continue on her life uh, as best she can. But then, as young people do, they meet others of the opposite sex and... Um, Whoa, 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 whoa. Of the opposite sex? Uh, Buddy? This all right. is, no, no, no. This is 2020. I'm not going to accept this kind of lingo. <laughs> no. Yep. Not going anywhere. The cancel culture police are on their way, bud. <laughs> so anyway, like you were saying, so she meets somebody that she's into, or he's into her, or she's into him, or whatever the fuck the case is. So in 2003... A man by the name John Blakely Ruff, who goes by the name Blake, who is the son of an affluent family in East Texas. Woo! (laughs) That's right. Good old Southern boy. Uh, (laughs) We're not doing this, Chris! (laughs) You're attacking everybody tonight! He meets our girl's new identity, Lori, in a Bible study class. Of all places. What's interesting to me is, and I know she's changing her life around, so maybe she wants to, you know, fit in with the the culture and, like, the locals type thing. 
I mean, we don't have any information, but she doesn't really peg us as a religious person, but she nonetheless meets Blake in a Bible study class. Maybe she's trying to change her life and trying to, you know, find religion or something like that, you know? It's possible, but yeah. As we come uh, to find out, uh, maybe that wasn't the case. So, as the dating goes on, Blake recalls that Lori was incredibly secretive. Oh, and come on! <laughs> in particular, regarding her past. Gee, I wonder why. Mm-hmm. She tells him a story, basically, that's saying that she was from Arizona and that both her parents had died. She had an unhappy childhood, no siblings, and that, for whatever reason, her father was a failed stockbroker. The interesting thing that happens is you have this guy who's from a, a, you know, a rich East Texas family and probably dying to hold this big wedding for his son. But unfortunately, Lori is not down to have a big wedding. And so she convinces old Blake to elope. Well, dude, that's funny that you say this because, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to envision what's going on in Blake's head. He's just accepting everything that Lori's telling him at face value, right? So, I mean, you know, he doesn't even know anything about her. So, you know, what's crazy, though, are there reports that Blake's mom was trying to talk to Lori, you know, you know, where are you from, blah, 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 or just, just being mother-in-law-y, right? <laughs> just fucking talking to you. Not only was Lori not answering the questions, bro, she was starting to get aggressive with the mom. I mean, what does that tell you? I mean, if that's not raising a red flag enough that you don't know anything about this chick, but the fact that she's getting nasty with your mother because your mother's trying to inquire about her past, oh, I mean, hello, fucking wake up. I mean, at this point, she's probably so deep in a lie that she probably doesn't even remember the truth. Honest so. to God, probably doesn't even know who the fuck she is. And if you tell somebody a lie enough over and over again, like you just mentioned, it becomes truth to you. You know, it helps you to be convincing to others when you when you tell them. So, well, that's the thing too, dude. She starts losing. I mean, at least it appears. I mean, starts losing her grip on. I mean, do, do we, we want to call it reality? Whatever reality she's basically living in at this point, because we don't even fucking know. This is a third or fourth identity. She is now in a, a spot in her life where she hasn't been before, where people are now questioning her and holding her responsible for her actions and who the fuck she is. So as Chris said, you know, they're in the South. So you would assume, I mean, I don't fucking know much about the South. I got a cousin who lives down in Texas. You know, you hear these fucking things like the Southern Bell. So you always think of like these great fucking weddings. And I'm assuming that's what Blake's parents wanted to have, especially if they came from money, they had the the ability to, to afford such an event. As Chris said, Lori wanted nothing to do with it, so they fucking take off in a lope. Fucking obviously, Blake's not answering any questions. No questions asked. Just goes along, you know, with the flow. And uh, here we are. They're fucking married. Unfortunately, and this is a sad part of the story, uh, Blake and Lori tried to have a child many times. And uh, unfortunately, they had a number of miscarriages. They went so far as to go the route of in vitro fertilization and uh, it ended up being successful and uh, like I said before having a child in a troubled relationship never fucking helps and uh, Chris buddy we're about to find out why indeed and with things all the tension already between Lori and her in-laws especially the mother it only gets worse because when she ends up having that daughter in 2008 she becomes extremely 
protective. So much so that basically not allowing anybody to hold the baby. She's even taking the baby with her when she goes into the bathroom. Anybody out there listening, put that into a real life scenario of anybody you fucking know. Could you imagine the mom going in to take a piss? Everybody at the fucking party or the gathering, you, you, got, you got a sister-in-law, you got a sister, a mother, a mother-in-law, anybody willing to hold the baby just so you can go piss for a second. And you're saying, no, you take the baby in there with you. I mean, hello, is, that, is anybody fucking paying attention here? <laughs> Sits the thing up on the towel rack and just goes to the My fucking God, is anybody paying attention? Blake, wake the fuck up! And like you said, I mean, you know, having a kid, it, it changes your approach on how, if you have issues at this point now, you're now locked together by a human. This is not like an easy walk away. You can't just step away now. You've got a kid. Oh, you're so, stuck for a good 18 years, pal. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you, you if you both have you know, a love for your own child, then you'll want to always be involved with them, which means you're always going to have to be involved with your spouse. This is obviously getting out of hand now, and the family is noticing this, and it's it's starting to uh, add a little bit of toxicity into the mix. And I'm glad you're finally uh, taking some responsibility for your toxicity, Chris. <laughs> it takes a toxic person to know one. <laughs> Touche! <laughs> so... She's still refusing to talk about her past, and I'm assuming Blake's mother is not letting it go. So she's probably still digging, wanting to find out more information, because I think what she's trying to do is probably catch Lori in some sort of a lie. No pun intended, but this is a rough time, I guess. Oh, not uh, again, Chris. God. <laughs> sorry, it was right there. I had to. Uh, you have a daughter now, so like, for things to, the tension in the family to get worse and worse, it's just... It's just not a good time. Like you said, having a kid when things are a little on the rocks, it's just not a good idea. Well, I always think, like, when you have a kid, and, you know, when I've had my kids, it's always been such a happy time for my friends, family, my wife's family. It's always been, uh, you know, this, this festive fucking time. And anybody who's, I mean, my God, somewhat normal, when, you know, if you've been through this and you have a new baby... And if somebody wants to take that baby and hold it and give you a fucking break for 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 two minutes, you take it. You have to be a real psychotic lunatic to not take that offer of somebody just holding the baby in the same room. It's not like they're just running off with the thing. Just, to, just ease your mind and, and, and take a little fucking break. But no, not in this case. She's running off to the bathroom with this poor child. So at this point, now... Blake's mother, Nancy, has basically had enough, and she's now basically urging Blake to just cut ties, get out of this marriage. So, Blake moves back with his parents, and he files for divorce. To me, this is berserk, but I, I guess it, you have no choice, but he's leaving their daughter with her in Leonard, Texas. To leave her with a, a very young child at this point would scare me. They at least had joint custody because there are reports that there was a scene caused by Lori, a physical and uh, a, a verbal threat of some sort, um, at a custody transfer. So she starts verbally threatening them and whatnot. So, I mean, you could see that she's now really starting to become unhinged. They went ahead and filed a cease and desist order. Basically saying, stay the fuck away from us, stay away from the baby. So they're obviously at this point looking for full custody of this 
baby, and rightfully so. But unfortunately, Chris, we never get to find out what happens with that cease and desist order. Why don't you lead us into uh, what happens next? On Christmas Eve of 2010, Lori Erica Ruff's body is discovered in her car in the Ruff's driveway with a self-inflicted gunshot, a fatal one. In the car, she has two suicide notes. One was an 11-page note that said, and I quote, to my wonderful husband, and another was addressed to the daughter, which was not to be opened until her 18th birthday. This woman obviously suffered tremendously from some kind of mental health issue, which she never was treated for. But the most tragic part of this whole story is that you now have a baby that is going to grow up without its mother. But Chris, that's not where our story ends, is it? It's not, because the investigation has only begun. Yes, because uh, Lori's suicide took place in 2010. Basically, she's been on a run since 1986, so now we're 24 years into it, right? So 2010, Lori's life comes to an unfortunate and tragic end, but Blake's family wasn't about to just let this fucking end. They wanted to know, who was Lori Erica Kennedy slash Ruff? Who was this person that gave birth to their granddaughter who married their son? And bud, they took matters in their own hands. They took off to Lori's house soon after her death. I believe it might have been after her fucking wake or funeral. But they headed over to her house, opened up the front door to find a fucking mess. Basically, they found a home that was in complete disarray, garbage all over the place. The baby's crib, unfortunately, was lined with feces and, you know, urine. So the child was obviously not being cared for and Lori was obviously not caring for herself as well so I mean we went from talking about how Lori was a very able-bodied and smart woman to now reduce to the point where she's not even able to take care of herself in any way so I mean that's what brings me to the conclusion that obviously I mean anybody with two brain cells could probably see that she was suffering from some kind of mental illness but I mean to the severity of this it's incredible and like you said it's incredible that she was able to even get partial custody of the child I just think it's scary to think about because they were saying like you know it was mentioned that that you know she was walking around outside you know people were noticing that she and the baby looked you know malnourished Oh, dude, that's one of the weird things, too. I've had friends who've lost their minds, and I've witnessed them talking to themselves and, and rambling. And there was a report from one of the neighbors of Lori that said that they would see her walking up and down the street, mumbling incoherently to herself. When you look at that from the outside, you're just reading it, oh, it sounds kind of funny. But have you ever seen it in person? It's very unnerving because you have somebody and you're dealing with somebody that's unpredictable at that point. And... You know, if you approach them, you don't know what you're going to get. And just the fucking bizarre nature of seeing someone talk to themselves, dude, th- th- that's a real mindfuck. Look, we all talk to each other, to ourselves, right? From time to time, sometimes, you know, but <laughs> there, there's a certain uh, way when someone talks about them, yes. you know, to themselves that you kind of know that they're not absolutely you know, there. So the, the, the scary thing is that you have to remember that now she's kind of losing her mind a little bit more and more and she's also very protective of her daughter so there must have been some fear with the rough family that if they tried to take her daughter and now knowing what we know that she took her own life how scary of a situation it could have turned into if she refused to give the baby up 
and decided, you know, who knows, to take her and the babies. Dude, life. this Just... had, an, yeah, you are absolutely 100% correct. This had tragedy, uh, uh, a more severe tragedy written all over it. The story does not end there, as we keep saying. Because as they were digging through Lori's apartment, bud, they came across this fucking lockbox that was hidden in her closet. The crazy thing is that Blake fucking knew about this thing's existence. She gave him specific instructions to never open this. Let me tell you something right now. If my wife, Lara, told me that there's a box in our closet that I could not open, dude, as soon as she hit the bricks, I'd have that thing open with a fucking sledgehammer. Don't open it. What the fuck? So, uh, Chris, uh, for the sake of time, bud, because I am getting tired as fucking tits, why don't you tell us what was in the lockbox? In the lockbox was very weird kind of incoherent ramblings, as they said. Like a, a, a name that popped up, which was the name of a lawyer that she had never met or spoke to. Numbers, uh, 402 months was written on it. North Hollywood Police. Almost things that, that look like perhaps that she was like almost evading a sentence uh are running from from a crime that she committed. Yeah, I've heard about that. Like, you know, I, I've heard that theory before because what, what, 402 months? Is that what it said? Yeah. Because that, that equates to the, <laughs> 35 years. I mean, that's one hell of a fucking crime. But who the hell knows what she did in you know that, that time frame between 86 and 88 where you know she was still in her own identity of Kimberly. I mean, <laughs> did she fucking murder people? We don't know. We don't. I mean, I mean we, we have no idea. She could have done something that they just don't know about, but I mean, when you're able to change your freaking name, no one's going to ever find you. So they look in further and they find the creepy thing that they find in there is they find the birth certificate of Becky Sue Turner and the judge's ruling to change her name to Lori Erica Kennedy. Dude, how weird is that? Like, you got away with it. Why keep the evidence? You know, like, I I try to look at this from a psychological standpoint. Did she feel that she was Becky Sue Turner? Like, why Why even keep that? Why even keep that little piece of evidence? Like, she's keeping that as if that's part of her history and her past. I mean, which it is, but not her real past. Yeah, and I mean, I could see maybe the judge's ruling might be something she'd want to hold on to in the future if she needed to prove something. But the birth certificate, I can't see why she would need that. Other than just to have it for her own purposes, just to... As a memento or something. I don't yeah, know. exactly, right? Like a memento. It's fucking weird. Obviously, very strange. They look, the Ruff family, they reach out to somebody through their contacts to investigate this further and dig up, you know, what this birth certificate is, what this name changes is. And of course, they end up finding out about Becky Sue Turner having died in that house fire at the age of two. And in 2011, Joe Velling, who's somebody that they. Uh, was a contact of the Ruff family, decides to do an investigation, and he was an investigator with the Social Security Administration. Who better than to investigate a stolen identity? So he's looking into it. Not only him, but they have a a forensic genealogist eventually look into this whole thing. Well, thank God, yeah, that forensic genealogist, she just randomly found this fucking story as it was released to the AP, right? So Velling actually asked for help Colleen Fitzpatrick, who is the uh, person who helped here, and she's <laughs> a former nuclear physicist who created the field of forensic genealogy. Good for her, man. She became obsessed with this, and she fucking took Velling's call for help to heart. 
And uh, my man, she helps solve this fucking case. She ended up revealing the true identity of Lori Erica Ruff. Am I right? Yes, you are right. And from an investigation that started in 2010 that didn't get finished until 2016. And the funny thing is, when Velling uh, initially took on the investigation, he was, in fact, working for the SSA. But by the time it comes down to him trying to find this person that Colleen locates that could be a family member of hers, he's no longer working for the SSA. He has to approach this person without any real credentials. <laughs> Just basically, he can state that he was. Hey, how an you investigator. doing? <laughs> how you doing, pal? Uh, <laughs> I used to work for these guys a long time ago. <laughs> the old, the old flash of a fake badge with the finger <laughs> over the face. <laughs> basically, to sum things up here, Colleen eventually narrows down a family tree of Kimberleys and is able to find a member of the Cassidy family who was a first cousin, and this sends Joe Velling out to meet the family member of Kimberly, and with him he takes a bunch of pictures that he, basically from different parts of her life, so different ages, different licenses and stuff, and right away, this relative says, my God, that's Kimberly. So he knows, thank God, finally we found it, we've found... A family member that knows exactly who this is and this is how they eventually end up finding her true identity dude how crazy is this because if this happened to this date and time with all these fucking nuances of these websites of the 23 and me and you know whatever the, what are the other ones uh genie <laughs> i dream a genie whatever the fuck the things are they they were able to fucking locate family members based on a, a swab of mucus from Lori Erica Kennedy Ruff's daughter and able to trace this back to her first cousin back in Philadelphia. It's fucking wild. Yeah, they're able to separate Blake's genes and focus on Lori's to what? narrow down family members. How do you know he wasn't wearing slacks? I, I have no words. <laughs> I'm sorry, Chris. But yeah, I mean, so uh, that's it. God, I mean, what a bummer to end it. Would have ended on that type of joke. But uh, yeah, I mean, that is, that's it, dude. I mean, they ended up finding it. It took, what, from the time she left home in 86 to the year 2016, dude, 30 fucking years to find Kimberly. But they did. And, you know, thankfully now, Kimberly's mom, Deanne, We'll have some form of closure to this, but more importantly, Kimberly's daughter will have uh, an access to her background and, uh, you know, health-related issues and whatnot, but also be able to form some kind of relationship, hopefully form some kind of relationship with Kimberly's side of the family. I mean, that's the best we can hope for. And as of the latest uh, report and accounts... That's what's happened. They were able to uh, keep in touch, and we hope that uh, it is still uh, working out well from them to this day. Don't we, Chris? We do indeed. (laughs) Some semblance of happiness can come out of this all. Woo! But that's it, bud. I mean, that is the fucking case of Lori Erica Ruff. And, my man, we got to throw a couple of shout-outs here. I mean... We got the fucking people over at Wikipedia working their magic, you know, helping us. But more importantly, I mean, we got to go with our girl here, Maureen O'Hagan from the Seattle Times. And she wrote this 
great article, which is way more in-depth than anything we can get into. And uh, the name of the article is, and I quote, My God, that's Kimberly. Scientist solves perplexing mystery of identity thief Lori Ruff. And if you follow that link, and I'm going to post it in one of our fucking websites, you'll find it somewhere or the other. That's the pictures. They have all the four uh, licenses lined up. And then they have a couple pictures of what was found in the Dropbox. And it's just, uh, you know, it's an unnerving case. It's perplexing. It's sad. It's creepy. It has basically everything uh, that uh, anybody who's listening to this podcast can want. That's for sure. But uh, that's it, Chris. That is the case of Lori Erica Ruff. But I'm out of gas. I'm fucking tired. Since we're in a bizarre world here by doing uh, this episode twice, but I'm going to throw it to you. Why don't you... Hmm? Uh Uh-huh. Why don't you wrap up this motherfucker? Well, I wasn't prepared for this, but, um... If... Oh, you... no! No! Who's that supposed to be? Oh, I... I just was trying to... <laughs> <laughs> My man, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at btcpod2020 at gmail.com. And if you want to reach us on our social media sites, we are Between the Cracks Podcast on... Instagram, and also Between the Cracks Podcast on Facebook. Facebook is where I will be able to reach you, and Instagram is where Bill will get in contact with you. Mm-hmm. Nah. Well, maybe you don't want to get in contact with Bill. <laughs> <laughs> but Chris, please, you're being so evasive. Can we at least mention our Between the Cracks store at teespring.com? As I said... Oh, wait, you opened up... I did, Chris, but please, I'm trying to get a few more sales, buddy. (laughs) Every shirt that is purchased can buy us a cup of coffee. And there is international... Yes, there is international shipping. It's just drop shipping. I don't have anything to do with it. I mean, I think we make... I'm not joking, Chris. $4 a shirt. Ah, just full disclosure. I think it's $4 a shirt. Split two ways is uh, (laughs) $3 for me and $1 for Chris. And then... (laughs) Is a half of a coffee cup. So I think it's like $25 for a shirt. We get $4 split two ways. We get $2 a shirt. And then uh, we move on with our day. But uh, I don't even give a shit about the money. I just feel so fucking uh, pleased to see people walking around with a Between the Cracks fucking uh, t-shirt. That'd be really awesome. So Chris, why don't we just wrap this bitch up? Uh, What do you say we bid everybody out there in podcast land the fondest? Oh, farewell. That kid is hungry for some Thanksgiving. And fifty-six percent increase, and a, and a fifty percent. Oh God! And a fifty percent. Oh my God! <laughs> and a fifty percent. Oh God! Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> and a fifty. As I said, this is not. A, as I said, this is a. As I said, bud, this is a. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so the first thing you're most likely going to notice when you look at these drivers, when oh my god, so the first thing you. The, oh, this is worse than last night, Chris. So. <laughs>
the fuck was I? <laughs> what the fuck was I even saying? Good point, Chris. Um. <laughs> All right, so I, I will just go into the fucking uh, lockbox thing, and we could just mention a couple crazy things about that, and then uh, what it leads to, and we'll wrap this fucking bitch up.